While you're standing, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me begin reading in verse number 8 to verse number 10. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Notice that last verse. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, and settle you. For a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you from the subject, the purpose of struggle. The purpose of struggle. Lord bless you, may be seated. Before I begin tonight, let me say how good it is to be home. Uh, this year kind of started off with a bang. <laughs> I have been across the pond, as they say. I spent a week in France and had the privilege of seeing a very unique move of God. France has not allowed their churches to have any physical contact inside the building for two years. So there's no altar calls that can have been called for or people invited to pray. Um, they're not allowed to lay hands and anoint them, pray for the sick. Uh, the penalties are quite severe. And for two years under the struggle of COVID, they've had to endure incredible um, opposition to having good church. Fellowship and being able to connect with people is just as much a part of church as preaching is. Amen. And being able to have that contact is incredibly important. Sunday morning, the power of God failed. There were People who were there, they didn't even know who they were. They just showed up, had a full house. And without anybody laying hands on anybody, people started receiving the Holy Ghost all over that auditorium. <laughs> as the fire of God did. You know, God knows what he's doing. I have noticed in traveling the last few weeks as I listen to people's conversations. Matter of fact, just a weekend or so ago, maybe in the last weekend or the weekend before, I was asked a question by a pastor. Why is it that we have no control over what's happening and it seems like we can't pray the prayer necessary to control it. And 
it seems as if we are not truly apostolic. I got to thinking about his question. It has been on my mind for several days now. And as I thought about it, for some reason, we have allowed ourselves to develop this attitude that living for God will never have one problem. If any kind of problems show up, that must mean I'm not living for God correctly or that God's not doing his job. We're going to blame God or somebody for what's happening. So it, it's God's not performing the way he should and, and God's not doing the things he should. And as a result, I just started looking at the different passages of Scripture that deal with struggle. Let, let, let me just use another. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in the seventh verse, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Revelation carries a price tag. The price tag that revelation has is that if I'm not careful as a human being, I can allow my human spirit to start thinking I'm important or I'm doing something right or I've got this figured out and, and that I start becoming the center of it. Man's desire to be God started in the garden. The reason Adam and Eve fell is because they thought they could be God. Satan started telling them and talking to them and implying to them if they just ate of the tree of knowledge and they had the ability to understand things, they could become like God. That problem has existed throughout the history of man. How many nations through the centuries have allowed their leaders to say or declare their God. The Egyptians did. The Romans did. The Greeks did. Their leaders become the gods that everybody's supposed to worship. This, this problem of thinking I'm, I, I'm important or, or I have accomplished something is in our fallen nature. And as a result of this fallen nature... If we're not careful, we can start thinking that, well, I deserve this, or this, this is important to me, so God should pay attention to where I'm at and what's happening in my life. Peter, writing to the church, says some incredible things to them. In verse 7, I preached about before, Back in 13, I looked at my notes. I make sure I, I don't cover the same scriptures repeatedly. <laughs> and, and, but I talked about 
the, the importance of understanding the, the blessing I have of just being part of God's family. Casting all your care upon him, which implies that the mountain of cares is so tall for years to get on it, you've got to run at it and throw it. You can't walk up. It's not a small pile. That pile of cares that he's already taken care of is so monumental. If you want yours to stick, you're going to have to take a running start to get it there. Peter, writing to the church in the very first verse of this chapter, begins by talking about the elders. And then he says, I am also one of those elders. And he, he knows the importance of what elder means in a Jewish life. It, it was David who made the statement about what an elder has the ability to say and can't say. And David declared that I once was young, but now I'm old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed out begging for bread. God doesn't abandon anybody. There will never be a human who shakes his finger in God's face and says, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't reach for me. You, you, you didn't try to touch me. Judas was appeared to, according to Paul, after the resurrection. In the 15th chapter of Corinthians, he lists who Jesus appeared to after he arose from the grave. And he says, first Peter, then John, then, then the 12, and then 500, and then James, and then me, one born out of due season. He didn't say 11, he said the 12. And the 12, when you put the in front of 12, it refers to the one and only set of 12. So that means he appeared to all 12 of them. Judas was a, Jesus reached for him. There's nobody going to ever say, you didn't try to help me. You didn't know where I was at. See, Paul or Peter writing to this Greek world, He's, he's having to struggle with the fact that the Greek world he's writing to doesn't have the history of his Jewish brethren. And they don't understand what God has done for Israel. But he uses terms to let them understand that Jesus is not like other people or beings. He's not like a God that's going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake you. Jesus declared, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. There's not a moment in my life or a day in my life that God's not present. He's always there. So here comes struggle. Now, we have become so used to avoiding struggle that if struggle shows up, we complain. Listen to your friends. Listen to people. Pay attention in the mall. When someone says, man, I got a headache. What's the next words out of somebody else's mouth? 
Well, I have some Tylenol. We don't want any kind of discomfort. And we have become so entitled to not having problems that the instant something unusual shows up, we don't know what to do with it. And we start wondering whether we're apostolic. God showed us in France, in Paris, France, the last weekend of January, that he don't need human hands involved or somebody whispering in somebody's ear to te- so that he can pour his spirit out on people that are hungry. It just fell. Nobody laid hands on nobody. Nobody prayed for nobody. The, the missionaries started walking the aisles and they started hearing people speaking tongues that they knew wasn't part of their church and never had received the Holy Ghost. We, they have no clue how many got the Holy Ghost. This is real. It's, it's the most real thing that happens. The problem is you and I get to live in our world and we start thinking like it. And then we start taking their thoughts and, and causing us to wonder, does God really know what's happening to me? And Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Then he gives a warning. I, I just beware, be sober, be vigilant, because the adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Don't allow your words to become the resources that Satan needs to wreck your life. Most of the difficulty that happens to us is prophecies we prophesied in our own life by our own words. I can prove to you Satan has no access to your mind or your brain or your thoughts. The Bible declares emphatically that Satan cannot talk to a child of God. He can't put thoughts in your mind. He can't put words in your mouth. He can't manipulate you and control you because you have been delivered from the power of darkness. You have been liberated from the control, from the influence. You've been delivered and liberated from his ability to wreck your life or harm you. And you've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And then you are hid, you are camouflaged. You're hid with Christ in God. When he looks for you, he can't find you. He sees Jesus. So when difficulties show up, we start wondering, where's God at? Hebrews tells us about people who had incredible faith that were delivered from all kinds of things. But it also has a list of people that didn't get delivered. My deliverance is not about whether God has the ability to do it or not. 
See, suffering has a purpose. Hebrews chapter 2 declares that it was through suffering that Christ was made perfect. Why? Because the Greeks believed that God is detached. God don't care about what happens. God's not interested in human beings. And Paul, writing to the Hebrews, lets us know that he's not detached. He's a God who sympathizes. He's a God who empathizes. We have a high priest that is easily touched by the feelings of our infirmities. That word is a a word that actually could be used to describe suffering. He's easily touched by the feelings of our infirmities. For God to be able to truly understand man, God had to become what he created and then understand the suffering that his creation endured. So God became man so that he could suffer as a man and be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He, he understands. Nobody's going to say, but you don't understand what it's like. My granddaughter, at six years of age, informed me one day that I didn't know what it was like to be a six-year-old. And that's, that's human's reasoning. That, that's what we're going to say to God. God, you just don't understand what it's like to live in this body I live in. And he's going to say, oh, yes, I understand all of that. Because without a struggle, the garment of salvation cannot be perfected. He said, After you have suffered a while, that's not a long period of time. The word in the original text implies a short struggle with things in life. Nobody goes through long, long struggles of life. They're short. The things that irritate us and cause us the most problem are those little short things. And that short struggle... He said, after you have suffered a while, after you have suffered a while, he will make you perfect. Now, that word perfect is not the same word that's used other places that means full-grown, mature, grown-up. It really refers to a tailor making a garment fit the person the garment's own. If you go to the store and buy a suit, men, you usually have to allow them to take it up. Why? Because none of us are alike. So suffering and struggles and difficulties is just God's way of allowing us to make sure this garment of salvation I have on fits me, not you. See, I can't wear your garment of salvation. You can't wear my garment of salvation. 
I've got to have mine tailor-made to me. And it's the difficulties life produces that gives me the ability to get through all this junk that life can cause. And, and it's, it's these, these difficulties that allows God to start taking things up. Now, if you notice growth, you can't put a suit on a child and expect it to last into adulthood. So sometimes in our spiritual walk, the Bible compares it to being born like a child and we grow and mature as a child into adulthood and living for God. So if that's the case, then in my lifetime, I've had to have suits let out and I've had to have suits taken up (laughs) and I've had to have them let out and taken up because this body just keeps changing. Well, my relationship with God does the same thing. If I'm a healthy child of God, that means there's change in my life on a regular basis. Now, change causes us problems. But it's that change that lets us know that we're actually maturing. When, When struggles come... It doesn't mean God's mad at me or God's out to get me. I I understand Job. I really do understand Job very well. Years ago, early 90s, had a bad accident, cut that finger off. That was hanging on by a piece of skin, and that was mutilated. Happened on Mother's Day weekend, Friday night before Mother's Day. 12 hours of surgery, put it back together. I wake up the next morning after having been under anesthesia for about eight hours or so, and I hear a voice in the room. I don't have my eyes open. I just hear this voice. And I hear this voice say to my wife, James's guardian angel wants a reassignment. So I just acted like I was still asleep. And I let them leave. If I could have done what I wanted to, I'd have probably hit him. Why do we say such horrible things to people? I I, I remember the Sunday morning after we lost our first child. She wasn't able to even go to the funeral. And I'm at the funeral and they go home and come to church on Sunday morning, walk in the building, and a, a, a lady met me in the foyer of the church and said, Oh, Brother Hughes, I'm so sorry for your loss. God just needed another rose in heaven. Well, why would God make me hurt so he could have flowers? You know, we just say dumb things on a regular basis. We, we just think we had to fill the air with words when in reality it would be better off that you just keep your mouth shut and, and, and just hug somebody and not try to give them any kind of advice because you're going to say something really dumb.
My son didn't die because God was punishing me. My, my son didn't die because he needed to punish my wife. She wasn't even supposed to have children. Brother Barnes came and preached in the middle of his sermon. He said, is there any ladies in this church that the doctors say you can't have children? If you'll stand up, God will heal you. You'll have a child. Six of them stood up. She was one of them. Three months later, we're expecting a child. So did the other five. But it didn't last. But I learned how to trust Jesus. I, I, I remember the experience that I'll never forget when I was standing in that waiting room that was almost the size of this auditorium, maybe not quite this big. And as far as for me to that set of double doors, and they opened and a doctor stepped through it and he said, Mr. Hughes. And I said, yes. And he said, your son expired and turned and walked off. The crush of hurt, the pain, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. And I sobbed. I closed my eyes. I felt something wrap around me and hold me really tight. And I just kind of leaned into what was holding me. And when I opened my eyes, I discovered I'm standing alone. Because he said, lo, I'm with you always. So we got to quit measuring our life by whether or not things are going right. We've got to quit looking at life as if God's out of control and Satan's more powerful. And he's wrecking the world when the truth is he's not. Amen. He is not out of control. He's not going to wreck my. He, he can't. The peace of God would path us all understanding. Shall. That is an absolute. That is not a possibility. That is an absolute. The peace of God would path us all understanding. Shall. Keep. Guard. Your heart and mind. God stations angels around my life so that an enemy, that's what the word keep means, to station army of soldiers around the city to make sure no enemy can get inside and attack what's inside the walls of that city. God stations angels around our life to make sure that he can't come and put things in our life. But our words give him an opportunity to use them to manipulate the world you live in to cause your pain to get worse. So when we confess how bad life is, then we just give Satan all the resources necessary to control every jerk in town to show up around you and cause all kinds of issues because we prophesied. After you have suffered a while, he will perfect you. He will make you perfect. He'll tailor make your garment 
so that it only fits you. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to establish you. And that means to make sure that your foundation is adequate, it's not destroyed, or it won't be destroyed. So he's going to make sure that what you're standing on doesn't crumble or fall apart, but the rock you're standing on will still be there when all the storm's gone and all the junk's gone and all the issues gone. You're going to look around and that, that the foundation that supports you is not changing. Amen. See, our foundation is not affected by earthquakes or tidal waves or hurricanes or disease. Amen. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because my world keeps making me think that all this struggle is not important and that I don't need it. I, there's got to be a pill that I can take. I, I need a, a Tylenol and an Advil. There's got to be a way of numbing this so that it, it doesn't bother me anymore. The greatest victory, folks, is not to avoid a battle. The greatest victory is to fight and win. In your natural body, when you fight a disease, your DNA records the disease you fought, and the next time that disease shows up, your DNA instantly starts producing antigens to make sure you don't catch the disease the second time. So the best thing you can do in life it's not say, God, get me out of this struggle or this battle. It's just, God, equip me with all the resources necessary to fight it. Because when I get through the fire and through the battle on the other side, I won't have to fight that one again because that one will have been conquered and I have won. And now I can live my life because I know that he's able to take me through to the other side. Now, I'm an old man. I take ownership. This old man's telling you that God will never abandon you. Never abandon you. Has life been difficult at times? Yes. But even through the most difficult times, he's always been there. And it's, he's, he's never been late. I might have thought he was late on several occasions. I wouldn't have had the interjection that I had as a result of the problem if he had just if it had taken care of it quicker. But apparently I needed the experience of learning how to just stand still and wait. Because the, what does the Bible declare about waiting? They that wait upon the Lord. Might, possibly, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as an eagle. Do you know that an eagle is not terrified of a storm? The reason 
is the winds of the storm give him the ability to get higher than he gets with his own wings. So when a storm comes, he will get out of his nest. You've never seen an eagle killed in a tree because of a storm. Because the instant that wind starts blowing, he's in the wind. And he starts letting that wind lift him higher. Pilots have seen him at 40, 50, 60,000 feet in the air. Because he just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And he gets above the storm. All those animals that panicked and wind up hurt or injured as a result. Now he has lunch. So the question is, are you going to be the whining animal that becomes lunch? Are you going to learn how to say when struggle shows up, okay, this is just one of those things in life. I, just another day in the life of an old man. That's all it is. It's not any different than the day before. It's just another day. And here's what I do know. He is trustable. He is trustworthy. He has never, never, never violated his promise. He's never broken his promise to anyone. He always fulfills his promise exactly the way he said. My mom prayed for my older brother for 50 years. How many times did we hear mom say, God promised me. He was going to save my son. He got my family in church at 16 years of age, but he loved music, and he was good. And he wound up playing his musical instruments in nightclubs for country western singers, and he was gone. Mother's Day, somewhere around 2001, 2002. 2001, I believe. He showed up. She heard him in the bedroom on Sunday morning thinking he was going home because he lived up by Tyler. Thought he was going home. And when he come out of his room, she said, are, are, are you going home? No. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to church with you. And he showed up here. In the old building, probably somewhere about where that set of double doors is, that Sunday morning, Mother's Day, the end of that service, made his way to an altar, prayed back through the Holy Ghost. Fifty years. Why? Because God promised. And when God makes a promise... If your garment's tailored, you're not going to fret over it. You're just going to keep reminding people, he promised me this is what's going to happen. You're not going to worry about what's it's going to happen. You're just going to remind people, he promised me that he was going to do it. So he, he, he prayed through that Sunday morning on Mother's Day and Father's Day that same year at a church in Sulphur, Texas, Sulphur Springs, Texas. She prayed through to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And both of them lived the last seven years of their life living for God. Amen. Why? 
Because he's promised. And he don't break covenants. And he don't break promises. But we get to look at life and start thinking, well, he, this is out of control. No, it's not out of control. Humans are out of control. He's not. Are you going to mount up? They that wait. If we just had patience. We're always out in front of God. God's usually pushing us because we're ahead of him. Instead of leading us. After you've suffered a while. He'll perfect you. He'll settle you. Then he will strengthen you. He'll give you back everything necessary to be strong. When you fight those battles and win, you always come out stronger than when you avoid them. But we're going to try to avoid them more than we are to get through them. I hate technology. They do things to you and don't tell you that they've done it. See, my phone's not supposed to be hooked up to that. <laughs> but they change all their systems up. That's twice. They did it last weekend. I'm going to have to leave my phone at home when I come to church. He's going to settle you, strengthen you, and establish you. When the world looks at you, they're going to say, how in the world do you have the strength to get through all those things? How is it that you could endure going through those kind of issues? And when you look back at it, what's your response? Well, wasn't really any big deal. I just learned to trust him. Why? Because he's trustworthy. And he knows the path I take. He knows when I get up. He knows when I sit down. What David said in the 139th Psalm, how often do you think about me? Lord, if I take the wings of the morning and go to the othermost part of the sea, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. There's, the, the, the start is just too great. And, and furthermore, when, when you think about me, God, how often do you think about me? If I should count your thoughts, they're more in number than sand. Now, I enjoy playing with numbers because that's my first degree. If you take one grain of sand, it's one thirty-second of an inch cubed, and you have one cubic inch of sand, you have 32,000 plus grains of sand. 
just in a cubic inch. If you take a cubic foot, 12 inches high, 12 inches wide, 12 inches deep, and count all those grains of sand that are one thirty-second of an inch cube, you have 4 million plus grains of sand. If you just simply take one yard by one yard by one yard, you have over 5 billion grains of sand. If we went to Galveston and measured sand 100 yards wide, five miles long, that island's 17 miles long, so I'm not even getting close to what the sand is there. 100 yards wide, five miles long, one yard deep, and counted the grains of sand, it'd be 1.17 times 10 to the 16th power grains. It'd be 1.17 with 16 zeros behind it. There's, we, can't even, we don't have a number to count it. If you stretched them end to end, that stretch over 5 billion miles. That's over 11 round trips to the sun and over 1,000 round trips to the moon. And you haven't started counting sand. How, how often do you think about me, God? There are more. Your thoughts to me are more. See, struggle forces you to focus on him instead of you. Struggle causes you to stop thinking about how you can fix this and realize, you know what, I, God, how often do, if I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and go the other side of the sea, you're there. Your eyes see me every moment of my life. That shouldn't produce torment. It should produce incredible peace because he always knows where I'm at. There's not a nanosecond in my life that God's not thinking about me. That's hard for my brain to comprehend. Not one nanosecond of my life that God's thoughts are not to me. God's thoughts are to you, to you, to you. Everybody in this room, every nanosecond of life, God's thinking about you. And he's thinking about your best, not your worst. God doesn't look at you and remember your failures and your mistakes. God looks at you and sees what he created in you and what you can become if you simply ever learn to trust him and allow him to lead you. He can make you see those things that he put in you and gave you incredible abilities to do. After you've suffered a while, he'll strengthen you. Perfect you, strength you, sell you, establish you. Where could you get a better deal? Now, I'm not telling you to say, God, just send the struggle. I need it. Please don't become a sadomasochist, please. Okay. But when the struggle shows up, quit whining about the struggle and start realizing that the struggle is just an opportunity to discover how great God really is and what God has the ability to do for you and in your life if you just understand how good he is and how great he is and what he will do for you if you let him. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you today for your incredible word and the power of your word to affect our lives.
your word declares that this word is quicker, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it cuts both ways. It, it discerns thought and intent. It's alive and well. It's active. It has the ability to still be as effective today as it was the day it was written. Lord, help us tonight to hide your word in our heart because it is the roadmap to life. It is what teaches us how to live life and gives us the, the ability to get through life as a result of simply just following your direction and following what you tell us to do. You were the forerunner. You were the trailblazer. You didn't expect us to follow a trail that we couldn't follow. You came and lived the life, blazed the trail so that every human now can follow your trail and lead the life you desire for us to lead because you showed us how to do it and you blazed the trail. You marked the trail so that I can follow you and find out what your desire is for my life. Would you bless your children today? Lord, in a world that's full of anxiety and panic and chaos today, would, would you bring that calming peace of your spirit? Would you allow that gentle presence to invade this place tonight and drive out fear and drive out anxiety and drive out panic and, and drive out all the negative things of our life and, and give us the ability to find the true peace that can only come in your presence. Because David said, I'll lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou only, Lord, makest me dwell in safety. You're the one who makes my life safe. So, Jesus, I, I am confident that you are able and that you will keep my life in peace. Bless your people today, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Would you worship him tonight?